Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast, where we break down some of the biggest fashion news of the week. I'm senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and today we have my fellow fashion reporter Zofia Zviglinska with us. Um, she's been on the podcast a few times, and we hope she will continue to be on the podcast with us. Um, Zofia, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much again. It's nice to be back on in the new year. Yeah, I think this is your first appearance of 2022 on the Week in Review podcast. Is that right? I know. What a momentous week to be back on. Yeah. Uh, Well, we've got a lot to talk about, um, and we're going to talk about something that goes far beyond the bounds of just the fashion industry, which is the ongoing invasion of Ukraine. It's a very big topic. There's a lot going on, and we're going to try and keep it close to fashion. Um, We're not going to get too in the weeds of like various geopolitical things, um, just because there's better podcasts, I think, to to talk about some of that stuff. We're going to try and keep it focused on on the fashion industry. But we're going to talk about um, what You and I have heard uh, from some various Ukrainian designers, people in the industry who are either in Ukraine or were and have left, how the fashion industry outside of Ukraine has responded, all of this kind of stuff. We'll also talk a little bit about the new climate report issued by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that came out on Monday. And then finally, um, in a little bit of a lighter note, we will talk about a lawsuit between Cartier and Tiffany, which I just heard about like today. It's Wednesday we're recording this. Um, and had completely flown under my radar. So that, that's going to be a fun one to talk about. But to start, um, Zofia, let's talk about Ukraine. And again, we'll try and keep it focused on on fashion. If I can ask, Zofia, I feel like you have a little bit more of a personal connection. Your family's from Poland, correct? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so um, my family's from Poland and we're basically just over the border, um, specifically from Warsaw. So we are very close to the Ukrainian border. Mm-hmm. And you have um, you have family in Poland right now who are getting involved with relief efforts. Yeah, they are. Um, I know that the the whole kind of community is banding together, and um, in terms of like organizing uh, help, donations, and blankets, it's kind of similar to to what the rest of the world is doing. But obviously, there's a lot more close contact as refugees come in to Warsaw onto other places. Um, but a lot of them will probably be staying in Poland for the moment. Um, I know that local companies like um, CCC, who are a shoe brand, have offered to kind of um, give shoes to refugees who are coming in. A lot of them have travelled on foot for um, a very long time, anything from seven to five days from various areas of um, of Ukraine. And I know that there's a lot of um, hotels as well, which have opened up their doors in Poland and in the other territories where refugees have fled to, um, to give people shelter. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, the, uh, you know, if anyone listening has probably been following the news, so we don't have to recap too much, but just like a tiny bit of context is just that the this invasion, there was um, a lot of sort of build up to it in the, the last couple of weeks. It really came to a head last week. Um, and it's been, I think, probably even more devastating than I think people expected. There's been bombing of residential areas. There's been a lot of civilian deaths, um, a lot of refugees fleeing the country. It's um, been pretty terrifying, as I think everybody knows. We, we don't have to dwell on that too much. But from my perspective, just from covering the industry, um, and Sophie, I know you and I have both been talking to a lot of designers in Ukraine or who are from Ukraine or adjacent areas. Um, It was quite scary at the beginning of this week um, and at the end of last week talking to uh, people in the area 
and I had been working on a couple of stories before the invasion really started and had been emailing with people and, you know, coordinating interviews. And then suddenly just a lot of that communication just understandably dropped off, which was very scary. And I mean, far scarier for those people than for me, but just in my sort of like sheltered view, it was like very, I don't know, jarring to just suddenly, you know, be cut off from a lot of the people I had been talking to. Luckily, a lot of those people, um, designers and PR people and, and communications and stuff that I've been talking to did eventually get back in touch. And a lot of them I have confirmed are either safe in hiding somewhere in the country or have left the country like we've talked about. Sophia, I know you've you've continued to have a lot of conversations with people in the area. Um, before we get into like the larger industry response, what have you heard from the designers who are based in the country and, and what their experience has been like? Um, so I think that my work is um, more focused on the PR agencies who are on the ground in Ukraine. Um, and they've been reporting out of the country using their um, platforms to collect information and put together media sources. Um, they're taking photos of the situation on the ground and sending it to media outlets. They're also sharing links um, to the outside um, community so that they might be able to get involved. A lot of the designers, in fact, I think will be more managing their teams on the ground um, who are displaced around Ukraine. Um, I'm not sure, obviously, what the situation is, but I know that the Yenki Yenki designer um, who was at Fashion Week reported um, what the situation was like for him and his team um, to GQ. I think what that was one of the first first-hand accounts um, for what was happening in, in Ukraine. So I think it's been a very, very tough time for them. I can't imagine what that must be like to to be managing people at the moment and to have teams who you're responsible for um, and who you need to think about while the invasion is going on. Um, I think for a lot of them now, it's probably a case of escaping over the border and thinking about your own personal safety. And um, they're not really too sure where they're going to be, whether that's you know a couple of days, weeks or, or months. It's all a bit of an unknown. Felt I've noticed kind of the same thing you're talking about, where a lot of the conversations that I had with people that started out as like, you know, normal PR journalist conversations where I get a pitch like, hey, have you heard of this brand? I, I was talking to a, the PR who represents um, uh, the designer Anna Osmakina, uh, maybe yeah. it's Anna. Um, and so that start that conversation started as just uh, talking about like this up and coming designer in, in Ukraine. And so it was a very normal story. And then the the PR are they're very, been very deft at sort of like they they're keeping that same conversation going, but now it's like the story is no longer like this fluffy kind of like check out this new designer. Now it's like a much more important like kind of story. So I anyway, point is I've I've seen a lot of the same things. You're seeing that those um the brands and the the agencies and the communications people are using those same skill sets to mm. sort of pivot to trying to do things that are a little more practical, uh, more important and raising awareness and money and, and relief and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. And honestly, I think that right now, the the kind of work that they're doing to, to bring awareness to this is a very kind of organized um, and very kind of swift and smooth response, um, which you can't really say the same for when it comes to the international fashion community, which has been a little bit slow, um, as I've kind of reported recently. 
And I think that that's, that's something that might be a little bit of a disconnect while in the same time, you know, you have people either on the ground or who are um, refugees. There was a woman that I spoke to for, for my article who had recently just um, travelled over the border to to Poland and was going to be reunited with her husband in in Greece. And she was still sending me, you know, images for um, from her recent shoots as a stylist. And I think that that disconnect at the moment for them is relatively well managed. Um, but I'm wondering if the the kind of international fashion community is going to be able to um, to respond with as much tact as possible as well. Yeah, especially. I mean, I think if you're not if you're somebody at a fashion uh, house in in France or the U.S. or something, and it's not really like on your doorstep, and it's not really yeah. affecting you like in a, a material way. Like I think there's a desire to be respectful and be like, you know, I've I had people like sort of, um, you know, pull back from like wanting to talk about some launch or something because they're like, it's you know, it's not the time. But the mm. it's always interesting to me of like, well, how long is that going to last before they're like, okay, we can go back to self promotion basically. Yeah, definitely. And I think what makes this harder is that obviously with social media involved in such a big way, it means that, you know, any kind of information that might have been current yesterday or this morning, if there's any development um, on the ground in Ukraine, you also have to respond to that and respond to that quickly, which, um, again, the fashion industry doesn't do um, brilliantly. Although there have been, you know, um, some announcements, especially today, after a number of calls to action. Um, so I do think that that the industry is is advancing in that and trying to kind of make sense um, of what is going on. Although at the moment, I think the main thing that's happened is that there have been donations to various charities. I think Ukraine Ukrainian Vogue um, has issued a, a statement to ask for the international community to get involved with an embargo on on Russia and Russian products. Mm. Um, so I'm wondering if that's going to be something that's also going to be enforced um, or if the big luxury houses like Kering, LVMH, um, are going to be more focused on putting forward donations as they have done in, in previous responses to, um, to international crises and, and local crises as well. I think I saw something about a comparison with the, the very swift response to the Notre Dame burning and and how this has been much, much slower. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is a lot of times when there's sort of international conflict, I think brands can sometimes be skittish about like sort of taking a stance on certain things, especially depending mm. on like the the importance of various markets and stuff. But I feel like this, to me, again, like it, it is a complex issue, but at the same time, I think it's been almost universally like the reaction around the world has been pretty similar in that it's like a completely unjustified, unprovoked act of aggression. So yeah. lots of people are taking a side and, and like, I, you know, you should take a side, I think, but it's just interesting, like seeing the brands kind of maybe toe that line a little bit of like, is this something we can unequivocally be on one side for, or should we try to like hedge ourselves a little bit? Um, you know, and I, I, to compare it to like a very different situation, but the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, I felt like, you know, we saw a lot of brands weighing in on that. And I think they it was kind of because it was like a dire situation in which um, the the sort of right side was quite clear um, mm -hmm. and other areas are maybe perceived as being more murky and maybe like more dangerous to touch. So I don't know. I feel like the, the yeah. this this conflict is like so urgent and so present in a lot of people's lives and also I think pretty um 
straightforward in terms of just morality that I feel like the brands are a little bit more pressed to make statements and do concrete actions and stuff. I've also seen, um, I think the brands that are closer geographically, like to Ukraine mm. and Russia, like tend to have a little bit more of a, I don't know, like taking faster bigger steps. Like, yeah, faster yeah, response. Yeah, I think you pointed out Nanushka to me as as one. Um, yeah, Nanushka was, I think, honestly, probably one of the first uh, brands to, to come out with statements and to come out with support as well, because they, they actually offered um, people to have a lot more support in terms of um, housing. Um, and I think there was some medical aid as well. All of that was kind of highlighted in um, in the articles, I think one thing as well that mentioning towards the the Black Lives Matter protest is that with with that it was a kind of national um, conflict, and here you're talking about international barriers which also involve trade. Um, so I think that it makes the situation somewhat more difficult um, because, of course, for brands that that does mean that some markets are going to be unavailable. But on the other hand, you know this this might also engage them in kind of talking about conflict as well um, in other locations around the world. Um, I know that there has been some highlight of how the the response has been much more vocal um, towards Ukraine than it has been towards some um, of the African nations and the wars mm-hmm. that have happening there. So I do think that it makes sense for, for brands to start having more of a conscience um, and putting together their values, um, as many of them are driving towards being value-driven um, companies as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, one more thing on on Ukraine, just I, I think it's worth mentioning. Um, in the last uh, couple of years, I feel like I have seen a lot more visibility of Ukrainian designers outside of Ukraine. Mm. I think there's been a lot of like really cool new brands and, and exciting names coming out of Ukraine. I feel like they really had and have a a burgeoning like and, and flourishing fashion industry. There's a lot of exciting stuff. So not that it would be less important if they didn't, but just like for our purposes as a fashion podcast, I, it's it it is relevant. I do feel like there was a there was and I, I want to be clear there is still a a really um exciting fashion scene in in Ukraine. And I'm hopeful that all of those great designers and and people who have worked really hard to make Ukraine an exciting place for fashion, like don't have their careers entirely, um, you know, upended by this. And, and I mean, they already have been, but you know what I mean? When hopefully when, when there's some sort of like resolution that, that, um, that flourishing of Ukrainian fashion can continue. Do you have any thoughts on that, Sophia? Just like the, the excitement coming out of Ukraine and, and I, it should be clear or it should be said, um, other parts of Eastern Europe too. I feel like there's been a lot of interesting developments in fashion. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for a lot of it, it is just a more exciting market. There's a lot of kind of allowances given to designers. I mean, it's a very kind of emerging market as well for the tech field. Um, and it's the same way with with digital fashion platforms. Um, ones like DressX, for example, who are, you know, the founders are from Ukraine and have received a lot of support from, from the publications there, from the um, organizations there before they, you know, really kind of um, announce themselves on the international scene. So I think that all of that is going to be sorely missed right now um, because it was such a a growing part of, of the fashion world and, and this new kind of tech landscape as well. 
Um, so I'm hoping that none of that is going to stop right now. And I hope that the you know support that was there before is, is only going to continue and strengthen um, as, you know, people will need it a lot more. Okay, so the other big news um, this week is that on Monday, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as part of the UN released another report uh, laying out exactly what the consequences of climate change is going to be over the next few years. This is a little bit of a depressing episode, but um, <laughs> I feel like the general sort of theme of it was the idea that delay means death, that we really like uh, are in an urgent time. There's a lot that needs to be done. Um but again, let's keep it focused on fashion. You, well, you go first, Sophia. So do you feel like the fashion industry is like adequately uh, in in any way like addressing some of these concerns? Or do you feel like it's on par with like every other industry and just sort of dragging their feet? I do think that they're still dragging their feet. Um, I do think that right now there's been a lot of talk about um, carbon offsets. Um, there was some talk earlier this year, I think, about um, some companies prioritizing deep growth as a strategy. Um, but since then, it has been shifted. I think the focus has been elsewhere. Um, and many of those sustainability um, topics that are so important and ones, again, raised in the IPCC report um, are ones that they haven't brought up again. I'm hoping that that will change. I know that a lot of brands get very involved on Earth Day, um, but maybe in, before then they will also release um, some more innovations, um, some more business strategies as well that look at um, either degrowth as a kind of more long-term strategy um, or something that is going to um, tackle the amount of returns, for example, um, that the fashion industry is producing. There's been a lot of areas that I think are still missing the necessary response. Um, and I do think that brand presence at the moment has has been great in the last year, especially in terms of marketing kind of new innovative materials. But I think there's still a lot more to be done when it comes to production, um, how to kind of make sure that that isn't overproduction. Um, and also how to make sure that that, um, that kind of market isn't something that is contributing towards um, carbon emissions in, in a really big way, which it still is at the moment, especially with, you know, the supply chain issues um, that were happening last year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, like things like carbon offsets are I'm, I'm quite skeptical of the idea that because, you know, it mm. seems like what we should really be doing is reducing emissions, not making the same amount of emissions and then like offsetting them in sort of sketchy, like sometimes yeah. untrackable ways. So like it's jarring to me hearing companies say like we're trying to do more for the environment. And then in their earnings call, they're like bragging about how like wow we made like 10 million more pairs of jeans this year or whatever and, and like mm. i feel like the biggest impact we could have is just like if especially if like the top 10 in terms of volume like producers of clothing just like did less you know yeah. but that's um you know like it doesn't matter if you're making new clothes in a sustainable way like we you're still just like pumping out so much stuff you know mm. Yeah, I think that that's a real thing. And honestly, I, I think that more brands need to embrace kind of other things that maybe have worked in smaller industries, like made-to-order clothing, for example, that would definitely um, limit the amount of things that are produced um, unnecessarily. And also working on being carbon negative because there's uh, you know, research right now which is being done um, with brands as well on, on how to kind of make sure that you're not just offsetting it and you know potentially doing more damage than good. 
Um, but also, you know, actually kind of reducing those emissions, making sure that your business is contributing in a positive way um, towards the climate. Cool. Let's talk about our last story then before we go. Um, so I wanted to get to this so it's not just like a total, like, miserable episode of, of horrible <laughs> things in the world. But um, I, I at least found this story kind of amusing. But um, so like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, so, so Cartier has uh, filed a lawsuit against Tiffany, um, both jewelry companies, um, accusing Tiffany of hiring away a junior manager from them in order to then learn the like trade secrets from her. It seems like from from reading through the documentation that Tiffany kind of is uh, selling this woman out because they fired her after like five weeks. Um, and mm. she said in an affidavit that's part of the lawsuit that she was hired as a source of information. So uh, there might be some substance to Cartier's case. Um, I think what it comes down to is like, is a non-compete like really enforceable and and is it enforceable in this um, situation? Um, I So I have some information that I have dug up on, on like how non-competes work. I've had friends deal with non-compete issues in the past, but before I do, Zofia, what was your, what was your thought upon seeing this? Do you feel like it's totally frivolous or, or what? I think it's really interesting because obviously you're talking about two massive, um, you know, brands who are in the same space, same space. And for, you know, for anyone kind of working in fashion, that also means that, you know, you're, you're potentially sharing, workers, managers, um, at some point, you know, in, in that kind of brand, um, journey or, you know, lifeline. Um, so I think that in that sense, it's quite interesting to look at this because it's not something that maybe would have been that unusual if not for maybe Cartier's position at this point or Tiffany's position at this point. Um, and what kind of a change the, the information that, um, that they passed, um, would actually have on their business because if it has significantly improved their, I think it was the high jewelry lines, um, then mm. that could also be a, a massive market loss um, for Cartier. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, okay, here's the, so this lawsuit was filed in New York. So New York state law applies here because uh, non-competes are a state-by-state -state thing in the U.S. They're not enforced mm. the same way or enforceable the same way in every state. New York is not very friendly to people trying to enforce um, non-competes. It's not that um, generous mm. to them. Um, so here's what New York says makes a, a non-compete enforceable. It's enforceable to the extent that it is, one, necessary to protect the employer's legitimate interests. In that sense, I think Cartier probably has a good like standing to say that, that it's against their legitimate interests. Two, does yeah. not impose an undue hardship on the employee. This woman got fired over it and mm. now is at the center of like a huge lawsuit between two giant companies. So I would definitely say that's undue hardship on her. Um, yeah. Three, does not harm the public. I feel like, I don't know if it really harms or doesn't harm the public. I feel like it's neutral. Um, mm. And then four is reasonable in time period and geographic scope. So I don't know about the time period for this woman, um, but there was another employee, uh, an executive who was hired from Cartier to Tiffany who was working on like a blue book, like high jewelry kind of thing at Tiffany. And mm -hmm. they were also mentioned um, in the lawsuit. And that non-compete was like, I think six or eight months, which from what I've heard, I think is typical, but I kind of think any non-compete of any time is like an unreasonable amount of time. It just seems like a, like you said, if you are work in, if you work in high end jewelry and you're at Cartier and then you leave, 
like where else are you going to go? Tiffany, like, yeah. or, you know, you're going to go to a competitor because that's where your skill set is. So I don't know. I that's feel like thing. trying to enforce really strict um, non-competes to me, like seems unfair to the individual. At, it like hamstrings people from getting jobs that they're qualified for. So I think it's like kind of a not nice thing to do. But in terms of whether it is enforceable under New York state law, as it stands based on those four criteria, like I think the hardship on the employee one is going to be the hardest one to prove, you know, because it sounds like it definitely was an undue hardship on her. Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, if you're trying to to make the best kind of impression that you are possibly going to get at your new job um, and you have, you know, a very good skill set, then that also means that, you know, you come with a certain set of information. Now, whether, you know, what she did was, was the right thing to do, getting fired for it. Um, is definitely something that she probably didn't expect. Uh, I think it yeah. raises a bigger issue of, you know, are non-competes even necessary in mm-hmm. the fashion industry? Um, and should they be enforceable um, in such a big way, especially if, you know, it does affect certain lines of the business as well? Yeah, well, like I said, I, I know some people, um, like real-life friends of mine who have been affected by, like, aggressive non-compete um, mm. issues, um, not in fashion and in other industries. And every single time it's come up, it's been like the person who was hurt most by it is like the employee. So, uh, I'm mm-hmm. against them for, for that reason. Just, I, I've seen a couple friends get sort of screwed over and, um, lose out on jobs that they were very qualified for just because of like draconian non-compete laws. So anyway, the, mm. the final thing I'll say though about Tiffany is like, I wonder really how much there is to steal. Like they're both giant, like, very old luxury jewelry companies. Like, I feel like they are on sort of a similar level. I'm just like, I don't know, what even is there that you could, especially because she was a junior manager, I'm like, what could you even get out of her that's really that useful, you know? Mm. I mean, if you're talking about the high jewelry line, which I'm guessing is different to the main um, Cartier assortment, maybe it's just a question of the amount of, of money involved and how to kind of market that. I know that Cartier probably has a slightly bigger reputation when it comes to to high jewelry than Tiffany's. Tiffany's have always kind of been a, a kind of lower end market in in that yeah. respect. Still high jewelry, but um definitely, you know, um more more accessible in some ways. They're both equally high jewelry to me. Oh really? <laughs> well in that I cannot afford either of them, but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, neither Cartier or Tiffany is particularly affordable. Um, but Tiffany have been making moves and and in mm-hmm. other ways as well, you know, with uh, with the number of lines that they've got focused on kind of Gen Z customers um, and in the, you know, promotion with the Basquia and Beyonce. Um, so I do think that, you know, maybe they're just being a little bit more aggressive in in their strategy. And this is definitely not going to help that. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, let's call it there. Um, Thank you so much again, Zofia, for for being here. Thank you to all our listeners. And and thank you, Zofia, for um, answering all my questions about Ukraine. You've done more work in this area than I have, so it was great to have you on. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, I've I've really dug into the the topic recently, and I'm hoping that this isn't the end of the coverage. There's still going to be a lot of stuff that um, the fashion industry will be involved in, no doubt. 
Absolutely. Um, and for those of you listening, if you haven't yet, please rate and review the Glossy Podcast on whatever platform you use. It really does help us out a lot. And make sure to subscribe. Not only will you hear the Week in Review every Friday with me and Jill or Sophia, um, but Jill also interviews fashion industry insiders every Wednesday. And if you subscribe, you'll get those too. So that's all. We'll see you next week. Bye.